Hi everyone, I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Before I jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to say thank you to everyone who has donated to my Patreon and supported my work. I'm blown away by your kind messages, even if I haven't had a chance to respond to all of them, and so grateful that there are people out there who are finding value and community in this space. If you're one of those people and you also want to show your support, you can head on over to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow. Okay, on to today's episode. When Chris was diagnosed with ALS, I was devastated and I was heartbroken. This was not how my love story was supposed to play out. Chris is my best friend. He's my partner and we had built this beautiful family and life together And when he was diagnosed, my vision of the future was shattered right along with my heart. And still, early on, I knew that no matter what, I would survive, that I would have to survive for our kids. It was hard to imagine bigger heartbreak than I was already experiencing, but that grew infinitely larger when I thought about Cohen and Willa, about telling them their dad was sick, about shattering their idea of their family right along with their innocence. In November last year, I wrote on my blog, My son is settling into the sadness. Last night, I tucked him into bed, kissed him on the forehead, and went to do the same for his sister. Mom, he said, I have one question about ALS. This is our new bedtime routine. After his energetic body has calmed down and the busyness of his nine-year-old mind has quieted, the ALS questions rise to the surface. I doubled back and sat on his bed, brushing the hair from his forehead as he talked. Daddy's voice is getting harder to understand, he said. Will he lose it? Will he talk with a cool computer like Steve Gleason? My heart both sank and soared. I was thrilled he used the word cool to describe how Steve talks, and I was heartbroken that now these realizations come fast and furious for him. The changes to Chris's swallowing and his voice have meant our little boy is having his own personal reckoning with this disease. He's too young for this, but ALS doesn't care. And so I sit in his bed with him each night, listening to his questions while my heart crumbles in my chest. I fumble around in the dark, searching for answers that bring him peace without false promises, that let him know he's not alone in this, and that all of his feelings are normal and valid and the same ones I have too. Tonight, the topic was nightmares. He's been having more of those. Do you have nightmares? He asked me. Yeah, I said, we all do. What's the worst nightmare you have? He wanted to know. Oh, I suppose when something bad happens to you or Willa or daddy, and I can't help you, I said. He turned his face from mine into his pillow, and I could see the tears squeezing out of his closed eyelids. You feel that way too, don't you? I said, like you can't help daddy right now, and that's all you want to do. He nodded yes, his head still buried in his pillow. I kissed his dark brown hair and rubbed his back and told him I know how he feels. I told him that the way we help daddy is just to love him as best we can. I told him that no one in this world, not even me, loves daddy the way he does, and that means everything to daddy. And then we sat there together and cried for a bit. I told him how proud I am of him, how much I love him. From the next room, his sister called for a drink of water. I brought it to her and sat beside her while she drank and told me about what happened at recess, and I thought about how much understanding separates them. 
They are three short years apart in age, but a world apart in grasping what is going on. For six-year-old Willa, there is just acceptance. She loves her daddy and matter-of-factly tells anyone she meets, My daddy isn't like other daddies. He has one hand and sometimes he talks funny. This happened last week on a sledding hill. She told a newly minted buddy her life story, grabbed her sled and zoomed away, squealing and giggling with glee all the while. It's a fact that doesn't go beyond the moment for her, and I am so grateful for it, for this time when her brain lives only in the present. For Cohen, though, there is an ever-increasing understanding of the future, of this disease, of what it could take from him. Another night during our bedtime soul-searching, he was just plain sad. Sad that Dad can't eat many of the foods he loves anymore. Sad that his voice is changing. I told him sometimes you just have to be sad. That sometimes it happens to me too. I told him that when I'm sad, it helps me to think of things I'm grateful for. I asked him if he wanted to try. He didn't hesitate. I'm grateful I have a daddy who's here, he said. And again, my heart crumbled. What a thing to be grateful for at nine years old. When I was nine, I was thankful for not having cavities at the dentist or getting to have ice cream after dinner. I wasn't grateful my parents were alive because I didn't know there was any other possibility. I can't take this from my children, and I'm not supposed to. This is part of their story, just like it's part of mine and part of Chris's. What I can do is love them and guide them and talk to them. I can cry with them and cuddle them. I know we all have two choices when we are dealt a hand like this in life. We can be angry and turn inward, or we can look for love and turn out. We will still be angry and sad, but we can use the pain to more acutely feel the joy and the heartache to more profoundly see the beauty. And it's my job and my promise to them to try like hell to hold their hands through this journey in a way that allows them to see the immeasurable value in the latter path. Tonight before bedtime, Cohen stood at the fridge filling his cup with water. We had just finished reading a chapter on On the Shores of Silver Lake by Laura Ingalls Wilder. I read this series voraciously when I was Cohen's age, in large part because many of the books took place just 30 miles down the road from where I grew up in small town South Dakota. Like all pioneer families, the Ingalls' have hardships. They lose one child and another ends up blind after a bout of scarlet fever. But Laura writes about the simple joys of her prairie life so beautifully about the warmth of their cozy home, about the days and nights of peaceful sewing and singing, about the small Christmas presents they all make for each other, and the nights around the fire while Pa plays the fiddle. I think these books will just keep getting better, Mom, Cohen said, because their life is hard, and it's also really, really good. I stared at him, amazed at the existential understanding contained in his tiny little body. You're right, buddy, I said, and isn't that just like our life? It's hard. And it's also really, really good. Life has leveled off for us since I wrote that. Chris's feeding tube has brought so much calm to our everyday, and my nights answering heavy, heartbreaking questions have been much fewer and farther between. But that doesn't mean I have any of this figured out. I often think about how so many people have told me that the kids will be all right. And I can never stop wondering, how do you know that? How do I make sure of that? How do we help our kids when they are forced onto a path that no child should have to navigate? I know I'm not the only parent who has asked these questions and tried to manage in these murky waters where there are so many more questions than there are answers, who has wondered what to say and gone to bed questioning if the tears they couldn't hide that day only made their kids more worried, 
who has felt completely overwhelmed at the notion of showing up to parent when they are drowning in their own grief. So I wanted to do an episode with all of that in mind, to have a conversation for all of us who have ever thought any of those things I just listed. And let's be real, grief isn't always about death and illness. We are all grieving right now. We are grieving all the things we have missed in the last year. We are grieving this third wave of COVID and all the things it is still taking away from us. We are all feeling pulled under by the stress and anxiety and depression and isolation this pandemic has caused, adults and kids alike. And we could all use some insight on how we can help our kids and ourselves in these challenging times. So today you'll hear my conversation with Calgary-based psychologist, Kara Litzy. Kara used to work at Hospice Calgary, a wonderful organization in my home city that specializes in therapy and counseling support for families who are dealing with terminal illness. Kara has her master's in counseling psychology, and she co-founded Solana Counseling here in Calgary. She's drawn to helping people deal with trauma, grief, and loss, and so I thought she would be a great person to help us tackle some of these very complicated topics. I hope you find our discussion valuable. I know I did. Thanks, as always, for listening. Alrighty, so we'll go ahead and get started. So, well, first of all, thank you for joining me today, Kara. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. What drew you to specifically helping like kids and families dealing with terminal illness and death? Yeah, so I it really all stemmed from my own experiences with death when I was a child. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of decided when I was like eight years old that I wanted to go into grief wow. counseling. And it just never really changed. So here I am. Um, so yeah, I've just kind of stuck with it since then. And I, I love the work. I love working with um, kids and teenagers and adults and really anybody. Um, but grief and trauma has always been where my heart lies. I'm going to ask you what your personal experience was. Yeah. Um, so it, it actually started when I was in elementary school. Um, I had a classmate who her and her sister were murdered by their dad. Oh, um, man. yeah. <laughs> um, so I just remember being a kid and, uh, being at school and having gone through this experience. And I remember a few details very vividly. And one of them is one of my friends who was close with, um, the girl who died, uh, she was having a very emotional experience to this news, obviously. And Mm -hmm. it was basically the response was to just put her in a corner (laughs) and it was okay. You go over here and kind of deal with your emotions over there. And then we're just going to carry on with the class. And I just remember thinking at the time, like, what is going on? Like, how Mm -hmm. is this a response that is being given to a kid who's grieving. Um, and it was just sort of around that time that I decided that that's what I wanted to do. Wow. That's how's your friend now? Did she get the help she needed? Do you think she did? Yeah, she okay. did. And she's fine now. Um, uh-huh. she didn't have any residual Long-term. issues like that. It was just in the moment. It was just sort of a strange response in my mind. So yeah, to, from the adults. Right. And I think that's part of this whole conversation is, um, you know, two things like 
it doesn't go away, obviously, if we don't talk to it about it. I do think that as a society, we're getting a little bit better at helping kids with these things, even if we aren't doing so great helping ourselves with them. Um, But in general, my feeling and in this podcast, my whole goal is to talk about these things more, you know, just like anything, when we bring them into the light, they're less intimidating and they're less confusing. And if we can just have these conversations and open up the dialogue, that's half the battle, right? Oh, absolutely. And there is such a stigma around talking about these things. So you're right. The more often people are able to do that themselves, the easier it makes it for other other people to do as well. Yeah. Like so many other things in life, I always think of that Maya Angelou quote, right? When you know better, you do better. (laughs) And that's what we're aiming for. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, when we spoke earlier today, um, I kind of mentioned how when in our, my own life, when, when my husband was diagnosed with ALS, that a lot of people would say to me, you know, the kids will be all right. And I always found this such an incredible oversimplification. And I know they were trying to say, you guys will get through this. You guys will figure it out. You'll show up for them in the ways that you need to show up for them. But it felt like from where I was to that point where the kids will be all right, <clears throat> we were missing a lot of steps. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today is how do we make sure that that indeed happens, that our kids are all right? And how do we help them while we're dealing with our own grief? So I thought maybe we would just begin at the beginning and say, how should we talk to kids about mm-hmm about an illness. We'll start with an illness. How how should we tell them if somebody is sick? Yeah. So it is such a tough thing because it's going to be different for all developmental stages with kids. Um, You don't want to tell a five-year-old the same thing that you would tell a 16-year-old. And so it really is meeting them kind of where they're at in terms of what they understand. But the main thing to remember, I think, is just being as open and honest with kids as you can be. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to go into a conversation like that, trying to protect them and giving them false hope. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also don't want to overload them to a point where it's just completely overwhelming and they don't know how to handle that information. Mm -hmm. So what I often will tell parents is give them the information that they're asking for, but not more. Mm-hmm. And give it honestly and succinctly as much as possible. So if, you know, you're telling them about a diagnosis of ALS, they might be going into that conversation having no idea what ALS is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, very likely they will have no idea. And so it's just looking at, okay, so how old is my child? What are they going to understand about Mm -hmm. an illness like this? What does that look like for them? Mm -hmm. Um, And just giving them the basic information so that they can kind of process it a bit, go away, be able to come back with some questions that they have Mm -hmm. and just be, yeah, as upfront as you can. Yeah. And, you know, my kids, our kids were only, they're now nine and six. And when Chris was diagnosed, then they were seven and, and four. And um, even I thought they, at those ages, needed different things. Just those three years were totally different for what my son, who's the older one, what he needed and what he could understand versus what our daughter could. And and so really, it doesn't have to be a huge age difference, right? No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, you're right. That three years can make a huge difference in terms of mm-hmm. what they what they understand, how they understand it, and how they're going to respond to that information. Right. And I think for our son, it was more of a, he had more questions than our daughter. And she just kind of was in a stage where at that point, it really seemed like she kind of just took whatever we said at face value. Um, One of my favorite stories about this is 
I think it was um, just this winter, past winter, we were sledding. And, and so my husband doesn't have use of his right hand. And in the last year, he's lost um, his ability to smile. And he's got some weakening of like his soft palate. So his voice has changed and, um, and his lips have atrophied. So his hard time making hard consonant sounds. So it's affected his voice. So she's sledding with her brother and her dad. I wasn't there. And, you know, as six-year-olds do, she met some kids she didn't know <laughs> and, and they instantly became friends <laughs> and yeah. she's about ready to bomb down the hill. She's got her sled in her hands. And she's like, my dad is not like other dads. He has one hand and sometimes he talks funny and she jumped on her sled <laughs> and away she went. And it was that simple for her. Right. Yeah. And one thing about that age group is that they, they do express themselves in a very blunt way a lot of the times, but that's also how they understand things. It's just sort of matter of fact, it is what it is. And I'm just going to carry about sledding (laughs) or whatever I'm doing in that moment. Yes. And then there was an evolution. I think the interesting thing for me has been to watch though, too, her evolution of, of how she's dealing with these things. Cause later on, I really kind of thought my son was the one who was having a lot of anxiety and that I was kind of more worried about his mental state than hers. And then there was a moment where uh, my husband has a feeding tube now because his swallowing is atrophied, his swallowing muscles. And there was a moment where, um, we were having, I think it was American Thanksgiving. We're American. So we do both. <laughs> um, so, and my, like my husband tried to take a bite of a roast carrot. It got stuck in his throat and he spent an hour coughing and everybody, nobody ate anything. And it was a horrible moment, but my son was having basically a full on pan, like a panic attack, worried that his dad was going to choke. And I was holding him on the couch and he was crying and on my head, his head on my lap. And I kind of all looking around for his sister. And I noticed she's like in a fetal position next to me on the floor by the couch. And I was like, Willa, are you okay, sweetie? Like what's going on with you? And she was, Oh mommy, I just, I just like to keep it all in. Mm. And I was like, Oh, so that was for me a real big awakening because I think I wasn't paying as much attention to her. Cause I assumed that it was much like that sledding incident, right. Where she was going to tell me and just say yeah. it. And I had to recognize that she was having an evolution in the way she was processing. Right. So we have to be aware of that as well. Yep. Yeah, for sure. It it does change. And that's another thing that will happen as they get older. Every time they hit a new developmental stage, they might re-experience all of this um, information in a different way. Yeah. So it can kind of come up over and over again, but in different ways as they get older. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, telling them what they need to know and not more, and which has been our approach. Chris is familiar, ALS is familial, which only about 10, 15% of ALS is familial. And his dad passed away from ALS, not even a year before he was diagnosed. And so the kids were old enough to know that they lost their grandpa. And we were very anxious about sharing that with the kids um, because Chris is on this experimental, he's in a clinical trial that wasn't available to his dad. And it's very exciting and he's doing very well. He was given six to 18 months to live and he's 22 months into that now. So he's past his expiry. (laughs) Yeah. And it's amazing. And that gave us a lot of hope that we wouldn't have to tell this kind of same story. It also made us really scared to, for them to make the connection between grandpa and dad, because now we think death is a possibility. Yeah. Right. And it wasn't long before our son made that connection. And he said to my husband, if you got this from grandpa Bob, can I get this from you? And I wondered 
you know, those are the really hard questions to answer. Um, and I wondered what your kind of advice is for, for questions that don't have a, a, a nice answer. Yep. Yeah. And that is such a tough conversation because of course you don't want to say just, yeah, it could mean that and just leave mm-hmm. it at that. Right? That's a terrifying, terrifying question. an adult, much less for a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to give them false information. So it is kind of that balancing act of how do I tell them this information in a way that is developmentally appropriate once again. Mm-hmm. So with a question like that, I think it's important to just be upfront and honest and say, yeah, there, you know what, there is that possibility, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's a for sure thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it will absolutely happen to you. And offering some of that hope as well that, you know, even if this does happen, this is in the future. This is not right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in the future, we don't know what things will look like. There might be treatment. There might be a cure. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, also don't know for sure that you're going to get this. But what we do know is that right now you are safe and you are healthy and you have people that love you and are here to take care of you. There's lots of other risks in life and we can focus on how do we keep ourselves safe? How do we make sure that, you know, we're trying to stay healthy and we're mm-hmm. looking after ourselves and looking after each other. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's not that different. I don't think than than what an adult has to do. And that's to try to stay to, in today, right. To stay present. This is what we have today. <laughs> this is yeah. what we know today. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He asked me, I was, I would say that was probably one of the harder questions my husband's dealt with. The hardest question I think he's ever asked me was, um, I was putting him to bed one night and he asked me once if I thought daddy would have a long life or a short life. Mm. And that was a hard one for me. Um, so I, you know, and I don't really know how I think I said something about, we don't really know how long any of our lives are going to be, but we know that daddy's on this medicine and that daddy's doing really well. And I believe that daddy is going to have a long life, but we can't ever really know for sure. What we know is that daddy is doing really well right now. And we can see that. Um, but those are hard, those questions that, uh, like I said, that you want to leave, they don't, they're unresolved, but you want to leave them with this sense of security. And so you're saying really the important thing is to say, this is what we know and you're safe right now. Yeah. And that is the perfect response. That's exactly what I would suggest is Mm -hmm. yeah. Like it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to let them know that sometimes there aren't answers and Mm -hmm. that that can feel scary, but at the same time, you want to leave them with that reassurance that you are safe right now. I am here to take care of you. There's lots of people that love you, all of that sort of stuff, just leaving them with that reassurance, even though there's that unknown. Mm-hmm. I've been um, listening to Mich- Michelle Obama's audiobook, and I thought it was one that I would not really be able to relate to at all, but I find generally speaking, because we're all humans, there's something you can relate to about somebody's story. <laughs> And um, early on, she talks about her dad um, being diagnosed when she was quite young with multiple sclerosis and that she had as no memories of really no memories of her childhood where her dad didn't have some sort of evolving disability, a limp right away, a cane, a crutch, later two crutches. And it really hit me that I hadn't thought about that for my kids. Like I had a long experience with their dad when he was totally healthy but they're really not going to have a lot of memories because of how young they were of this not being a part of our life. Uh, And I wondered if you could speak to how that sort of impacts kids long-term growing up with a parent who has either a disability 
or an illness, even if it doesn't end up being terminal, but it's just something that's always present for them, how that reverberates for kids. Yeah. So, I mean, I think with topics like that, it's, there is no one answer, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, this is how it will or will not affect them. Um, It's, I think it's different for every kid in every situation, but I think the main thing is that even if they don't have memories of their dad being healthy, completely healthy without mm-hmm. being affected by ALS or whatever other illness mm-hmm. another kid might be experiencing, um, that doesn't change their relationship with their dad, mm-hmm. right? Like their relationship is what's going to be what they remember most, the feeling that they got from mm-hmm. being around their dad, the time they spent with their dad, um, what they did together, all of those things are mm-hmm. what's really going to stick with them. Um, in terms of the hard things about living with a parent who has an illness and how that's going to impact them, I think the major part of that is going to be when they have a safe space to be able to cope with whatever they're feeling in that moment, that's what's going to be allowing them to come out of this experience in a way that's healthy Mm. and that they aren't you know, significantly negatively impacted in a damaging way. Right. And are those safe spaces, what do those look like? Would you say, how can we help give our kids those safe spaces? Yeah. So I think the main thing is having an adult of some kind. It doesn't have to be a parent or guardian or anybody in the family necessarily, Mm -hmm. but having some adults in their life that they feel they can talk to. They can mm-hmm. be comfortable asking questions, talking about their feelings, mm-hmm. uh, opening up about whatever they are experiencing. Mm-hmm. And the one thing with that that I would say to just be aware of is if you have a kid who is one of the sensitive ones, one of, one of the ones that has that protective instinct that maybe wouldn't go to their parents or their grandparent or somebody like that because they want to protect them. They feel like, well, mom's already dealing with so much. I don't want to put my worries or my sadness onto mom because I know that mom's sad already and mom's worried already. Um, If you have a kid that you know is prone to something like that, or you're picking up that maybe that's what they're doing, providing some sort of external person for them to talk to. So whether that's like a friend's mom or dad, um, an older cousin and aunt or an uncle, a grandparent, a therapist, whatever that may be, but just having somewhere for them to be able to go and safely talk about whatever they're feeling, and ask any questions that they have, um, be able to express themselves and whatever they're feeling in that moment. Mm-hmm. We talked about, again, I about the notion of, you know, not saying too much, but and in, in, in that, I wanted to ask you about what kind of language we should be using with our kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, it's very different depending on the development sure. stage. Yeah. Uh, but I would say with language, it's just, again, being open and honest. So if you're talking about death, use the words die. Um, You're talking about um, like a terminal illness, letting them know that, I mean, maybe a terminal illness to a young child, they're not going to know what that means. Right. Right. So 
using words like it's a it's a very serious illness. It's um, something that dad won't get better from, something like that. Yeah. Um, but just not using euphemisms, I guess, mm-hmm. is a big thing. Passed away. Yeah, passed away. Um, they've gone to sleep, like things like that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that you want to avoid because it can be very confusing for kids. Mm-hmm. I found in, for me, one of the, one of the big challenges is definitely um, trying to figure out what's normal nine-year-old stuff and six-year-old stuff and what is about something bigger. And one of the examples I always remember is um, in the first year that Chris was diagnosed. So the first Christmas after he was diagnosed, I went after Christmas to take down the Christmas tree. And my son had a very emotional reaction. He kept taking the ornaments and putting them back on the tree And he was very, very sad. He did not want Christmas to be over. I had had a hard time personally with, and all those holidays in that year, especially because at that point, we weren't really sure how this medication was working for Chris. And I had this constant fear that every one of these big days might be the last one that we were going to have as a family of four. And so I was really trying to figure out in that moment what that was about for him. Was it really about Christmas or was it about that that same kind of fear I was having. And I wonder what your advice is for parents when they're trying to sort of fish that out of a kid. Because my fear in that moment was that I was going to give him the anxiety I was having if he wasn't <laughs> having it, right? I didn't want to say, is this about your dad? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah. how do we balance that? How do we figure out what is about them just being, I mean, ultimately, I really think he just loves Christmas. <laughs> He had yeah. a stocking hanging in his room until July. That was the compromise. <laughs> but in that moment, how do we figure out how do we figure out what's just the kid behavior and what's some about something bigger? Yeah, and that is that's such a huge question because it's really hard to tell. There mm-hmm. is there's not one indication that it's like, oh, this means that it's about dad or this means it's about Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, like you also don't want to misinterpret their behavior Mm -hmm. as being about something related to what they're experiencing when it's not, and then putting that idea in their head. Mm -hmm. That being said, typically, if you ask a kid, you know, is this, is this really about Christmas or is this about dad? That won't instill that anxiety in them. Mm -hmm. Um, but I get where you're coming from. (laughs) You don't want to create anxieties for them to worry about. And they're like, Oh, I've never thought of that before. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Should I be worried about that? (laughs) (laughs) I think the best way to go about that is to really just ask a lot of open-ended questions. So if in that moment it was about Christmas, um, really just asking like, well, what's going on for you right now? What, what is that emotion that you're feeling that's making you want to put these Christmas ornaments back on the tree. Um, and if, if he were to say something like, well, I'm just sad that Christmas is over. Well, what makes you sad that Christmas is over? Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that's making this Christmas hard for you when you haven't done this in other years or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just sort of exploring, just being curious about what they, mm-hmm. what behaviors they're exhibiting or what they're saying or whatever it may mm-hmm. be. Um, asking lots of questions, lots of open-ended mm-hmm. questions and, and trusting them, trusting that, yeah. They'll you know, if they, yeah, if they say, you know what, this is about Christmas and I just want to keep the stocking in my room, then yeah. that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it's not, and they're saying that it is, maybe they aren't realizing that that's where they're at right now, but right. it will come out 
right? Mm-hmm. It, will, it will come out eventually. Right. One, one um, thing that I struggled with a lot uh, with him, he's, he's quite a bit more open now, but I got a lot of, I don't know when I would ask, well, what, what are you feeling? What is this about? What is, is it, is this about, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And how do we help kids with that? Cause obviously I'm guessing he didn't know how to just say what he was feeling. Truly. I don't think he was trying to hide it from me. I think he just couldn't figure it out himself. How do we help them with that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a huge one with kids, regardless of what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes kids don't know how to name their emotions. They don't know what exactly it is they're experiencing. Um, And so a big thing to help with that is helping them to become familiar with emotions. And that can be done through a million different ways. But oftentimes it's just providing, it can be as simple as just providing like a list of emotions, different words for anger, different words for sadness, different words for fear, all of those things. Sometimes they don't know what exactly it is because if they're feeling anxious about what's going to happen to dad, they the word they might know for that is fear. But then in their minds, they might be thinking, well, but I'm not scared. I'm not afraid right now. I'm not afraid as if you know, I think there's a monster under my bed. It's different than that. And so then they don't know how to say it. They don't know what that emotion is. Whereas if they can look at a list of words or they can hear you talk about an emotion that they haven't necessarily identified with before, then they can kind of point to that and say, okay, this is what it is that I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. I just haven't learned about that yet. I don't know what this is. (laughs) Yeah. So one thing that I've, I've tried to do just because it, it has felt like maybe, maybe, maybe it would help is to tell them to, to, to put it on myself. I'm feeling like this, this makes me feel like this, you know, we've been homeschooling this week because these past, this past week, because of COVID getting a little scary again, and we're all sick of it. We're all sick of homeschool. We're sick of COVID. We're sick of it. And we've had a rough week. We had a rough week. And at one point I just said, this sucks. I am sick of this. I want to hang out with my friends the way I used to hang out with my friends. I don't want to worry about getting sick anymore. I want to take trips. And, and, um, you know, I think it landed that time because I think that was probably what was going on for him. But is that a good tool for us as well to be able to say, this is how I'm feeling when really we think that's how they're feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Because that's just a way of explaining the emotion to them, right? If you're, if you're explaining it from your perspective of what, that emotion or that experience might be like, then if they're hearing that from you, they might be like, oh yeah, that that's exactly what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Or they might be like, no, that's not quite, that's not quite it. But either way, they're gaining that knowledge from hearing you talk about your experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of in that same line, I wonder if you could give us some examples of how grief shows up for kids, what we can look for that we might not draw a, a straight line to a behavior that we might think is not about grief, but might actually be about grief. Yeah. So that's the other really complex thing about grief is that it's different for everybody. And there's no real, as much as it's portrayed that there should be a normal way of grieving, there's really not. There's no way that you can look at somebody and say, okay, this is how this person should grieve or will grieve or has grieved. There's, it's so different for everybody. But with kids, it often presents very differently than it does in adults because, again, they don't have this past experience. They often haven't had any sort of experience that's even remotely similar to going through a major loss. And so 
the way that they deal with that is going to vary from kid to kid. But one thing that will often present in kids is more of a physical Mm. presentation of grief, like those Mm. psychosomatic symptoms. So they might start presenting with, um, mom, I have a stomach ache, mom, I have a headache, mom, my back hurts, that sort of thing, right? Like lots of physical aches and pains, um, just generally not feeling well physically can be a big thing. Um, another really, really common thing is regressing. So starting to talk in like baby talk or, um, not being able to sleep through the night anymore, wetting the bed, that sort of stuff can come up quite often with, with grieving a loss. Um, it kind of can present in, in all sorts of ways, the way that they think they might be hyper ruminating on, on things that they never used to, mm-hmm. um, being really clingy, things like that often are part of the grieving process for kids. Mm-hmm. I think, um, our son's therapist once told me that a way that we might see it, him grieving is in a lack of focus. Mm-hmm. which yeah. was a big one for me. Cause I had noticed that. And I noticed that in myself when I'm grieving. Right. But it can be hard to even say, well, he's just nine and he's didn't listen when I told him to do this. But I thought that was, is that a pretty common one? Lack of focus? Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially, um, when it's, when it's something that they're either experiencing, that's an ongoing thing, like a life-threatening illness, or, um, if the, the death or the loss is recent. Mm-hmm. That, that's a major time when kids will experience uh, that lack of focus and inability mm-hmm. to function how they normally would. Mm-hmm. The other one that that we've dealt with is a really difficult time ending fun things. And mm-hmm. it's been um, a frustrating thing for me. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't think of it in this way until again, uh, my son's therapist mentioned it to me that it's almost like he's, that's how he's disassociating. It's how he can say, now I don't have to think about that. And when that is over, then he knows I, now I have to go back to thinking about that. That was a really powerful one for me because I didn't think of it in that way. Yeah. That's a very common one as well, where if they're able to do something fun where their mind can be completely taken off of their current circumstances. Yeah. It's really hard to be drawn out of that. It's hard to go back to quote unquote, real life, right? Mm -hmm. Dealing with the realities, the hard realities of your life. When, if you just keep playing, if you just keep doing whatever you're doing, that Mm -hmm. is able to take your mind off of it. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to come out of that? (laughs) Exactly. And I think it's compounded right now, probably something everybody's going through with COVID as well. Uh, Whether you have this extra layer, like my family does, like you don't get your no. everybody's under socialized. So it's twofold, right? It's like, well, I'm not, I don't know when I'm going to see my friends again. Now they're not even, mine aren't even in school right now. So it's just, it's hard. And that's part of it too, is just recognizing. And I remember I said that last week and I'm like, this is just hard. There's not really a solution for us. We just have to get through it. Right. Right. (laughs) That that can be challenging. What are some signs, warning signs in our kids that let us know they need extra help that maybe talking to their parents isn't enough. Talking to another adult isn't enough some things that maybe more than just, I need somebody to talk to once in a while, but some real signs of, you know, depression and anxiety that we should be looking for in our, in our younger kids, like my kids, and maybe also in teenagers. That's, that's another really tough one because it is so subjective. Mm -hmm. I think that pretty much anything that presents during 
um, the grieving process, um, anticipatory grief, anything that presents during that time is going to be considered normal. Grief presents so differently throughout each developmental stage and can present differently in each individual kid. So for some kids, that might mean that they are really, yeah, like hyper-focused on the details. They might be asking the same question 900 times. Um, They might be having trouble sleeping or having nightmares, things like that. And then often with teenagers in particular, it can look like grief is, it can come across as selfish because they're just so focused on, you know, wanting to be with their friends or wanting to go about life as normal. And so to an adult that might look like, well, you know, shouldn't you be wanting to spend the time with your family member or whatever? Um, But I think that the main thing that's going to be a warning sign, as opposed to just, this is how this particular kid is dealing with what they're going through, is when they aren't functioning how they should be. Mm -hmm. So if they're, and, and for an extended period of time, I should say. So if they are not able to go to school, if they aren't sleeping, if they aren't eating, if they aren't doing the things that they enjoy um, Mm -hmm. anymore, if they've suddenly dropped, you know, something, a habit that they have or um, routines, things like Mm -hmm. that. When those things start to change and it's gone on for an extended period of time, I would say that that is a good indicator that they, they need some additional help. Yeah. So I mentioned we've, we've tried to be quite honest with our kids without, you know, over, over sharing. Um, But there was one, one period in this where we were going through this kind of loss of Chris's smile started in, it started last year around this time. And then it progressed and progressed. And probably by August, he wasn't really able to smile at all the kids weren't saying anything about it. And we were still kind of trying to figure out what it was and what it looked like, but it kind of was going on and on. And I felt like it was this elephant in the room. And I thought, well, I don't, what I want to be sure of that we're not doing is just not saying anything and they're aware of it. And they're thinking, well, we're not talking about this. Clearly we're not talking about this. And I wondered about that instinct that we have to protect our kids from pain and tragedy and loss. And what is the danger in that? How can we hurt our kids when we're really trying to protect them? Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a big one too, because you're right. It can feel like, well, if they're not bringing it up, does that mean that I shouldn't bring it up? Because I don't want to draw their focus to it if they're just happily living their lives, not noticing these things. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right. That can be harmful because oftentimes kids are a lot more perceptive than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they can pick up on anxiety or sadness or emotions that are taking place, stresses, things like that, that are taking place within their family or their home or, you know, with the people in their lives. Mm -hmm. And if that's not acknowledged, if it's not, if they're not talked to about that, they can interpret that as being something that is very inaccurate or a bigger thing than the truth even. Yeah. Make it worse than it really is. Right. And then they're sitting there, you know, ruminating on this, wondering, well, what's going on? What's going on? Is this some massive thing that I need to be worried about? Nobody's telling me. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, if you had just talked to them about it, they could have been like, oh, okay, well, that sucks, but it's Mm -hmm. not what I thought it was kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think with stuff like that, it is checking in with them. 
like with your example, when you were talking about um, him losing his smile that nobody really noticed except for the two of you, um, even asking the kids, like, are you noticing mm-hmm. anything different about dad? Um, yeah. Are you noticing anything going on in between dad and I, or, you know, does anything feel different to you? Is there anything that you're concerned about? Are you worried about anything? Mm-hmm. Just open asking those open-ended questions is mm-hmm. the biggest thing. Yeah. Ultimately it was, I think it was in August finally when we were sitting on the couch and I just said, well, you guys have probably noticed that dad's smile is different, has changed. And they both went, huh? (laughs) (laughs) You can't believe you guys are like the nosiest, most observant people on earth. And they hadn't noticed that one, which I found interesting, but (laughs) (laughs) oh, well, who knows? (laughs) knows? Yeah. And we obviously talked about it a lot since then, but yeah, it was as easy ultimately as just saying that we, we talked a little bit about kids who, who say, I don't know how they're feeling, but what about kids who just aren't talking to you? You know, how do we access them? How do we help them? If they're just not really saying anything to you at all, I imagine this might be more of an issue for teenagers than Mm -hmm. kids, my kids age, but what's your advice for parents in that situation? So that is, again, it's, it's such a tough, thing because you don't want to force a kid to talk about something that they're not ready to or not comfortable talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, If that's the situation, I would say providing them with other outlets, talking about it isn't the only outlet, right? So it, it, I would just be cautious about seeing it as if they're not talking about it, that's a problem. Of course, we want them to be able to talk about it. We want them to be able to be open and upfront and feel comfortable. Um, but if they're not in that place, if they're not feeling ready to talk about it, if they're feeling like it's just too much to have that conversation right now, that's okay too. As long as they have some way to express it and they know that they can talk about it if they want to. Um, so ha- providing other outlets for them, whether that's like physical exercise or, um, you know, art or music or anything that can just sort of help them get some of that emotion out, um, is a big thing. And then, yeah, like I said, just having that safe space for them, giving them that reassurance that, you know what, I'm not going to pressure you to talk about this Mm -hmm. right now, but I want you to know that if ever you have any questions or if you ever do want to talk about this, you can come to me or you can go to this person or you can talk to this person over here. Or if you want to talk to somebody completely separate, we can look at getting you into counseling or whatever that looks like. Our approach with our kids was kind of um, to get them comfortable and with a therapist as a, almost as a preventative measure. Yeah. So that hopefully they wouldn't need, you know, it wouldn't get come to a point where something was really wrong and now they didn't have any rapport or no foundation with somebody. And so that was kind of our approach, but it took us a while to get there because our, um, not my daughter, she was like, I love therapy. When can I go back to therapy? She <laughs> loves her therapist. But my son was very resistant to therapy for a very long time. And I wonder if you have advice to parents for how they can help kids, um, you know, get more comfortable with that idea, how you can, I guess, maybe you need to come up with some sort of compromise. Like, well, what? <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to say bribe them, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's, it's tough because I say this to adults and to kids that the biggest, the most important part of therapy is having rapport with the person that you're seeing, right? If you are going into therapy and you don't feel comfortable with your therapist, you're not going to get anything out of it. 
And so that's almost another aspect of it that I would even portray to the kids. And I guess you kind of have to be cautious with this because some kids use this to their advantage, but (laughs) uh, letting them know that like, you know what, we're going to go see this person. You can sit and talk to them, see how you feel. If you're not comfortable with them, we can look into somebody else, other people that you can talk to. And you're not just like stuck with this one person if you don't feel comfortable with them. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like I said, you kind of have to be cautious because then you don't want your kid to be like, yeah, I don't like this one either. And then going through like 15 therapists. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Yeah, totally. What ended up Uh, working for our son was um, he loves hockey and he, there's a a Vancouver Canucks player who has been pretty public about his own issues with anxiety and depression. And he did um, like an intermission interview about it. And after our son saw that I was able to use him as an example to get our son to go, but I would also not have been above being like, you know, that video game you want. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not afraid to admit that I wouldn't, I could have, you know, just to get him over the hump, I would have, I would have bribed. (laughs) Well, and I mean, yeah, like you also want to have that positive association, right? So if, going to therapy and then going to get ice cream after is what's going to make them want to go to therapy. Um, There's nothing wrong with having that positive association with it. There is such a fine line between getting them over that hump, making sure that they're able to build that rapport so that it feels comfortable and pushing them when they're not ready. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. There's, there's a fine, it's a fine line. You kind of have to judge as a parent and 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 trust yourself that, you know, your kid and what, what would yeah. be good for them. Exactly. Yeah. Similarly in trusting yourself, this one is one that I struggle with. My son very once very matter of factly said to me in the car, my life is a lot harder than a lot of other kids I know. And he wasn't sad and he wasn't angry. He just said it. And I think because of the way he said it, just as a statement of fact, it really broke my heart, especially hard. And it made me think about the notion that we kind of the instinct I have as a parent to maybe let more things slide, be a bit more permissive, because I know that they have all these other things going on in life. At the same time, I know that kids need boundaries and limits to feel safe. And that's a challenge. How would you talk to parents about that? How we, you know, find ways to say, I, you know, I can let that go. But also remember that in order to make our kids feel safe, we can't be permissive. Yeah. So that's exactly it. It, You're so right in saying that kids need those boundaries and those rules and those routines to stay the same in order to feel safe. Mm -hmm. Because if they're going through a massive change, like a parent's illness or a death or something like that, it can feel like their entire world is turned upside down. And so if the rules and the boundaries and everything like that, the routines, if that, if all of that starts changing too, then they're left with, well, what do I know about my life? Um, What do I have left here that I'm familiar with? And so there is a big portion of that that's, they need those things to stay the same, Mm -hmm. but wanting to give them some slack because they're struggling is also a big thing. So you're right. It does come down to kind of trusting yourself, knowing if your kid is having a particular hard day because of something that's gone on with the family, or maybe it's just a hard day for them. Maybe they're just particularly sad that day. They're particularly frustrated that day, having that recognition that, okay, maybe today 
things need to be shifted a little bit, but that doesn't mean that it's going to stay that way for the whole week. Yeah. Kind of thing. right. Maybe just for a little bit here while you deal with these big emotions that you're having, will knock off some of these chores on your list, or you know, maybe you don't have to go to school today or something like mm-hmm. that. But that doesn't mean that you don't get a, you get a not go to school whenever you feel like it. <laughs> it's, yeah. No free pass. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, kind of so a, just picking your spots. Yeah. 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 Basing it on whatever is happening in that, in that day or that moment. So much of this is about trusting yourself as parents, which is yeah. hard, right? Because that's, there's no, there's no guidebook for anything in parenting. And then on top of that, to, to throw in something as complicated as an illness, it's, Oh, it's yeah. just trying to trust yourself is, is the reason why the parents also need therapists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. So we have really tried to kind of control the message, right? To tell these things to our kids about their dad's illness and these phases that we needed to. But uh, we have done a lot of like television interviews and things. And we were on Hockey Night in Canada. Um, after hours. And there was a segment on Chris during Hockey Night in Canada. And I remember being really worried because we didn't let our kids watch it because I was very emotional in it. And I just didn't think it was necessary. And I was really worried about what their friends would say to them because I knew that their their friends would watch it. And ultimately it was fine. And it, it didn't, I think a couple of kids maybe said, I saw your dad on TV, which was really all they thought, they thought that was cool that they saw someone they knew on TV and that was it. <laughs> But it made me wonder what advice you would give to parents who have kids whose friends are going through something like this. How do we tell our kids this, your friend is dealing with this and here's how you should show up for them. How can we guide them through that? Because I think that's important. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And it, again, it's, it's such a um, developmental thing, right? Because Mm -hmm. a seven-year-old isn't going to be able to be there for their friend in the same way that a 16-year-old will be. Um, But I think it's going to be the same approach, basically. So when you're talking to your child who has a friend going through something like this, it's going to be very similar in how you tell them about it. Having that same open and honest approach, letting them ask questions, making it developmentally appropriate, using the right language, all of that sort of stuff. But then when it comes to supporting them, mm-hmm. I think it's going to come down to what your child is comfortable with, um, because you don't want to tell your child, okay, so the, your friend is going through something major and you need to be there for them. You need to listen to them. You need to check in on them and put all this responsibility on a child right. who might be completely overwhelmed by the mm-hmm. idea of even talking about something like that. Yeah. Um so maybe talking to them and giving them the power to be like, what do you think would be helpful for your friend? Yeah, right. um, is there something that you would want to do for them? Would you want to make them a card? Would you want to mm-hmm. um, have them come with us for like a fun day out? Would mm-hmm. you, you know, let, let them kind of come up with some ideas of what they think would be nice and helpful for their mm-hmm. friend. Um, and also letting them know that sometimes your friend might be sad and you might not know how to support them. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe try to think about what what would you want if you were sad, if you were having a hard day, what would you want your friend to do for you? Um, and letting them know too that if they are struggling with that, if they're not really sure how to support their friend, they can come and talk to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great ideas. 
something that happened to us this week made me think of this, this question to ask you, which was, we were having a hard time with math or something and it was feeling very overwhelming. And I, and I used their dad as kind of a, a, an example of perspective where I said like, Hey, if dad can do these hard things, we can get through this. Now I said it in that moment in a calm way, I'm sure I've used that before as a tool that wasn't so calm. I always wonder, is this the wrong thing to do? Because while I think it's important to understand perspective and understand what other people are going through and to try to kind of figure out, is this a big, medium, or small problem in the grand scheme of things in life? I also don't ever want to minimize Mm -hmm. what they're going through. And I also worry that kind of approach could create sort of some resentment around their dad's illness or disability. And I wonder what you think about that approach, that idea of using a hardship that someone they love is going through to say, Hey, we can do hard things. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that that is kind of an inspiring message to send to them, right? It's look at all this stuff that your dad is doing, despite what he's going through. Look how strong he is. Um, look at all the things that he's overcoming. And why don't we use that to inspire ourselves that, you know, if dad can do all of this, that means I can do this math problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's a really inspiring message to send, but yeah, you're right. There is also that concern that is that going to minimize what they're experiencing? Is that going to make them feel like they shouldn't feel like they're struggling because their dad is struggling more. Right. Yeah. Um, But I think the way to counteract that is, again, with that safe space, giving them that opportunity that, you know, we can get through this because dad is getting through this too, but it's okay to struggle. It's okay for Mm -hmm. this to be hard. And even though dad is overcoming all of these things and you are overcoming all of these things, there's still going to be days that this sucks and this is really hard and we're going to have bad days and there's going to be things that you don't want to do, or you feel like you can't do. And that's okay. Yeah. As long as you know, we're, we can talk about it and we can work through this together and you have support and you have people that love you. Mm-hmm. I think one of the hardest things for me in this is to figure out on my hardest days, how to be a mom. And I wonder if you could speak to how, we parent and help our kids with their grief when we're sort of drowning in our own. Yeah. Yeah. So that's such a massive thing because especially for you in the role that you're in, where you are a parent and you're also a caregiver Mm -hmm. that really doesn't leave a lot of room for you to have your own experience because you're so focused on everybody else. So (sighs) it becomes tough because you can't necessarily carve out every day time to look after yourself, Mm -hmm. um, to have that self-care routine, to be able to even check in with yourself and say, well, how am I doing if Mm -hmm. all you're doing is caring for somebody else? So I think giving yourself as much grace as you possibly Mm -hmm. can in those moments, letting yourself know that if you are feeling frustrated, if you're feeling resentful, if you're feeling overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. That's okay. And that Mm -hmm. is totally justified and honestly like deserved in that Mm -hmm. moment, right. That you're allowed to 
feel those things and anybody would feel those things. I think it's so common for people in positions like that to have this mentality that they need to be superwoman, right? They need to be able to do everything for themselves. They need to overcome everything. They need to not be concerned about themselves um, and be okay with not being concerned about themselves, but that's not realistic. So giving yourself that grace that it's okay to feel that way. And whenever you can carve out that time for yourself, do it and don't feel bad about it. Yeah. Make yourself a priority whenever you can mm-hmm. um, and ask for help. Right. Yeah. In that same line, I wonder how much of our sadness is okay to show our kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I often, I show my kids a good amount of my sadness, but I also have times where I walk into the bathroom and silently sob for 30 seconds and then splash water on my face and walk back outside. And I have times when I lock the door and take a shower and most of my crying happens in the shower. (laughs) And I wonder how much, you know, how much of that is okay to share with our kids? Because Mm -hmm. I think it's unrealistic to say, oh, mom's strong all the time. And it's not fair to them either. But I also think there's a danger in making them feel overwhelmed with your sadness. And like we talked about earlier, feeling like I can't talk to mom because she's already going through so much. So how do we kind of find that balance? So I think that it's, it's got a lot of importance for them to be able to see you sad and you struggling because it lets them know that it's okay. Right. It, it gives them that example that it's okay to be sad. It's okay to express that emotion. It's okay to cry. Um, it's okay to feel however I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. But you don't want it to be so overwhelming that they take that on as like, oh no, this is too Mm -hmm. much for me. Now I need to start taking care of mom because look at her, she's falling apart, right? Um, So I think the biggest thing with that in terms of how much you show to them is going to be how in control of it you feel. So if you're in a place where you're like, I can't keep it together, I can't hold any of this back, I can't... be composed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be an indication that maybe that's something that you should do separately from them. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I'm feeling kind of sad right now and some tears might flow and I might talk about how I'm sad, but I can do that in a way that's not going to be this like flood of emotion towards my children. That would be a perfect opportunity to show them. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the best, uh, examples I have of feeling like also your kids, I don't know. I don't want to say my kids are helping me, but they do in, in so many ways and the ways that they see what's going on. And it's, I, I, I don't know what it was. I said something to my son about, we were going to get takeout for me personally, since my husband has not been able to eat, I've struggled with cooking. I didn't rec- realize that I would have such a lot of grief and mourning over his ability to eat and how much of my enjoyment in cooking was about making things that he enjoyed. And now I, I make food for him for his feeding tube. And so I'm always in the kitchen measuring and doing things, but I have a lot less energy and desire to cook meals. We've had a lot more takeout. (laughs) And I said something to my son about one day after school and I wasn't feeling sad. And I just said, I think we're going to get takeout tonight. And you know, sorry, I know we've been getting a lot of takeout. And he was like, you're still feeling sad about dad not being able to eat, huh? And I just started crying and it totally caught me off guard. He, he saw that in me and I didn't even know that I was feeling it at that moment. And I think that's such a powerful thing is also give your kids chance 
to say, I see, I see you. I know what you're going through. Right. I'm almost going to cry telling you about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that, I think that speaks so highly to exactly what we've, we've been talking about. The fact that kids are so insightful Mm -hmm. and we don't give them the credit for that oftentimes. And so, yeah, giving them that opportunity to express some of that insight that they have and recognizing like, oh yeah, they actually do get it. They are seeing things that maybe I'm not even that they're seeing or recognizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've talked a lot about language and about telling kids not more than they need to know, but I wonder, and about how there's no guidebook for this. So in that sense, what, what do we do when we mess up? When we say something we shouldn't, we say too much, we show them too much sadness. How do we fix that? Talk about it. Yeah. I would say own up to it. You know, like if you, if you feel like you've made a mistake in what you've said or um, how much emotion you showed them or whatever, tell them that. Tell them that, hey, you know what? I feel like I told you too much or I feel like um, I was a little too sad when I talked to you earlier today. And I'm sorry for that. I didn't, I didn't want to make you feel like I was um, in trouble or needing your support yeah. or whatever. Maybe, um, but just yeah, letting them know. I, I I think that was too much for you, and I don't want to do that in the future. And I want you to know that you don't need to feel like you need to take care of me or mm-hmm. um, that I'm not okay because I'm here to take care of you and I'm okay. Um, but I think yeah, just acknowledging yeah. whatever it is that you feel like shouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. I think so much of my parenting uh, philosophy or my hopes that I'm not going to mess my kids up too bad <laughs> is that <laughs> apologies are really impactful. I'm not afraid to apologize to my kids. And I think when I was growing up, that was the opposite. Parents don't show any weakness. Don't apologize. Yeah. I think I probably have overcorrected on that. <laughs> I'm an <laughs> over apologizer now, but how impactful is an apology for a kid? Huge. I think it's massive in so many different ways because first of all, it's setting a great example for them that it's okay to make mistakes. And when you do, you just apologize for it. You talk about it, you set the record straight, whatever it may be. Um, and then you move on from it. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's the other aspect of them recognizing that, okay, so this isn't this maybe isn't something that is something I need to carry with me. Yeah. I wonder if you could kind of summarize what are the best things parents can do for their grieving children? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that safe space is going to be the biggest thing. Um, Creating a spot for them where they feel comfortable um, with an adult of some kind doesn't have to be you can be anybody mm-hmm. uh, where they feel that they can talk openly without any filters. They can ask questions. They can show whatever emotion they're having in that moment and know that it's okay to show that emotion. Mm-hmm. Having that safe space is a big thing. Trying to keep routines um, and rules and stuff like that as much as you can. But again, having that recognition that sometimes that might not be realistic. Right. Um, being open and honest with them answering their questions um, as succinctly as you can without going overboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, just really allowing them to grieve or process the information that they're getting in whatever way suits them. Mm-hmm. And that's not always going to be the same every time. It might change as they grow and develop. It might change from day to day and that's okay. 
conversely, what, what are the biggest mistakes that you see parents make when they're going through something like this with their kids? Um, I think ignoring that children grieve. I think that's the biggest one. It, people often think that if they're a kid, then they aren't going to feel things in the same way that an adult might. Um, so either brushing that aside and thinking, well, they're too young to really know what's going on. So I'm just not going to acknowledge it. Um, or alternatively recognizing that they do understand it. And so trying to protect them by not telling them anything, not having those conversations, not giving them an outlet to ask questions, um, just sort of sweeping everything that's going on under the rug, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any books that you'd recommend either children's books, books that would be parents should read books on grief in general that you have found impactful that you could recommend? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got a few. So um, for kids, uh, the next place is a good one. Tear soup is a good one. Um, The invisible string is a good one. Um, Once upon a hopeful night is a good one for understanding illness. Okay. Um, for adults, there's one called, uh, when breath becomes air. Yeah. Have you read that one? So good. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, walking each other home conversations on loving and dying. Okay. And then there's also one that I know we were kind of chatting before this about books on parenting through. Yeah. Uh, so there's one called how to help children through a parent's serious illness. <laughs> That's aptly named. Yeah. <laughs> Forward. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that one might be a good. Okay. Good book. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I have loved talking to you and I really, really appreciate you doing this with me, Kara. Yeah. I've loved talking to you as well. Thank you for having me. You bet. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. huge thanks to Kara for taking the time to talk with me and sharing her knowledge today. If you are in Calgary and looking for counseling services, you can find Kara by going to www.solanacounseling.ca. That's S-O-L-A-N-A counseling.ca. I think one of the most valuable parts of this conversation for me was about the power of apology, of making amends, of saying, I should have done that differently. There's no guidebook for how to deal with an illness or death for how to help kids through these things. There is no one way to grieve. Every family is different, every person is different, and every illness is different. As I wrote once, sometimes we know we are doing it right. Sometimes we are barely holding on. This life is hard, and it's not fair. And unfortunately, some kids have to learn that long before others. On the days you know you are doing it right, be proud of yourself. And on the days you are barely holding on, be proud of yourself. I talk often to my kids about our ability to do hard things, and no one is a better example of that than my guest for the next episode of Sorry I'm Sad, Ryan Stresnitsky. Ryan was paralyzed from the waist down three years ago in the devastating Humboldt Broncos bus crash that killed 16 people. At just 22 years old, he has embraced something I've talked so often about in this space, that while we cannot control what happens in our lives, No one can take away our freedom and power to decide what we do with our suffering. In planning our Zoom conversation, I asked Ryan if there's anything he'd like me to stay away from, any topic he just doesn't want to talk about right now. He wrote me back, 
I'm pretty open about everything, so I'm excited to share. Isn't that amazing? I hope you'll join us for that conversation. Until next time, thanks, as always, for listening. Thank you.